Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting reimagined childcare, Rutgers University, Newark, the Fidelco Group, Bank of America, RWJ Barnabas Health, Johnson & Johnson, the Northward Center, United Airlines, and by the Adler Aphasia Center. Promotional support provided by AM970, The Answer, and by NorthJersey.com and Local IQ, part of the USA Today Network. I'm Steve Adubato. Welcome to a special edition of Think Tank on News 12 Plus. We're joined by our good friend, longtime colleague, Cecilia Zalkine, President and CEO, Advocates for Children of New Jersey. Cecilia, how are we doing? Great, Steve. Thank you for covering this issue. Well, we've been covering it together for a long time. Um, you advocating us, trying to create public awareness. People are about to see an interview that we did with Natalie Renew, who is director of Homegrown. By the way, tell everyone what Homegrown is. Homegrown is a national advocacy organization supporting family childcare, which is childcare provided in an individual's home. And now tell everyone, make sure they know what advocates for children of New Jersey are and why you matter so much. So ACNJ is a statewide child advocacy organization. We focus on the well-being of children with the goal of ensuring that every child has the chance to grow up safe, healthy, and educated. And what happens in the early years from birth to three are critically important, especially education. And for young children, childcare is education. So, Seal, for years we've been working on this uh, reInvent Childcare initiative, right? There's a childcare crisis. We just, uh, we're about to actually tape a live stream interview, excuse me, a panel discussion on the childcare crisis. Succinctly describe what the crisis is, not only in the state, but in the nation. So I think the crisis existed before the pandemic, but the pandemic really heightened what the issues are. Uh, Childcare is struggling, struggling to provide quality care at affordable prices for parents. And what we've seen during the pandemic is that programs who are struggling have had to close. Um, and now that the state is reopening, schools are reopening, childcare is needed even more, what we're discovering is that staff is key to childcare. And there's an enormous difficulty in hiring and retaining staff. Um, they get paid minimum wage. Um, they are, most often do not have benefits. And I think that a lot of things are coming together to demonstrate very dramatically that this is an industry that is, one, important to the state, and two, we need to invest in. As you listen to SEAL and we get ready to watch this Think Tank program here on News 12 Plus, remember, and by the way, you'll see the website for... Uh, reinvent childcare. It's an ongoing initiative. It's not a one-off segment or a program. It's a commitment to public awareness around this childcare crisis. That's why we've been working with SEAL and her folks at ACNJ and so many others who are part of the childcare community. It matters to everyone, whether you have a young child or not. And that's why we're doing this. And SEAL, I want to thank you and check out the following Think Tank program. It's really important. Hi, I'm Steve Adubato. Welcome once again to a half-hour program dealing with important policy issues and 
issues like child care. And to kick it off, we have uh, Natalie Renew, who is a director of a national organization called Homegrown, uh, focused on improving the quality and access to home-based child care. Natalie, talk to us. A, first of all, welcome. Second of all, why is this more important now more than ever before? Thanks, Steve. It's great to be with you. Um, child care has always been an important issue in this country, but now more than ever, the pandemic really laid bare how critical child care is to ensuring that we have a thriving economy where women fully participate um, in work, but also ensuring that children are cared for um, and supported during this challenging and difficult time. Child care is critical for um, children who need to be out of the home. Quality child care is critical so that children are learning and thriving and enter school uh, ready to be successful. And it's critical for their families so that they can work and know that their kids are well cared for. And it's critical for communities and economies to ensure that, um, uh, you know, parents are working and that child care owners and providers um, are, are, are able to offer services that are valued and um, supported. Natalie, you know this is part of our ongoing series called Reimagine Child Care. The website is up right now. We encourage people to find out more. And this, people think, oh, oh, you're doing a series on child care. This, this affects the economy. It affects the stress on of parents, disproportionately women, uh, single women, really, especially. Uh, but my question is this. To what degree has COVID adversely impacted um, home-based child care? Sure. So home-based child care providers have um, experienced a number of things things during COVID. Firstly, there's been increased demand and reliance on home-based child care as center and school-based care shut down. More and more families looked to home-based providers, including relatives and neighbors, to care for their young children. Simultaneously, home-based child care providers have really experienced enormous hardship during the pandemic. Um, you know, in addition to sort of worry about their own health, bringing, um, you know, the children of essential workers into their own homes, exposing themselves um, to the virus. They also have experienced significant um, financial hardship, really a, a triple whammy of financial hardships, which is one, the cost of care has gone up. Uh, sanitizing, buying PPEs and things like that have increased the cost of doing business. They have had disrupted revenue, either because enrollment has changed or because parents' ability to pay has changed. And for home-based providers, they have really struggled to access public supports, whether that is the Paycheck Protection Program or other um, state and federal uh, supports. So it has been really um, very challenging for them from an economic um, perspective. And despite that, you know, these incredible women and caregivers have continued to really support families through this challenging time. You know. Natalie, the series that we're doing is called, in fact, Reimagine Child Care. You have told our producers and you've said publicly, quote, our current child care system is simply not working. So reimagining child care, we want it to be way more than a slogan. If you reimagine it to what it needs to be, what it must be, what does it look like? Well, firstly, it's significantly, it's, it's got significantly more public support. We really need to um, think about uh, childcare as a public good and one that we as communities uh, broadly value and pay for. 
Um, but also I think there's a real opportunity to think about childcare that um, meets different parents and diverse families in different places um, and offers much more flexibility um, and, and really supports different choices that parents make. And so, um, you know, what we hear from home-based childcare providers is that they want to be respected and valued as a critical part of the childcare system. And that, you know, from the perspective of families, they, their needs change. When a, a child is a baby, they may want something that's different than when their child is a four-year-old. And we really need to ensure that there is availability and supply of high-quality options in, uh, in, in homes, in schools, in community centers, and other forms of childcare. So reimagining childcare for me, number one, starts with significantly greater public investment that I that is really targeted towards improving compensation and working conditions for providers and caregivers. And it also really means getting more support to families, not only in terms of lowering the cost of accessing care, but ensuring that they have high quality options in different settings, including home-based settings. By the way, have we been putting up the uh, website uh, of Homegrown? I want to make sure that uh, we do, even if not now, we're in post-production, let's put it in there. Before I let you go, Natalie, it sounds like it's uh, not just professional for you and not just because you're the director of Homegrown. It sounds personal for you, is it? Absolutely. Um, I really feel so incredibly honored and privileged to get to work with hundreds of home-based child care providers across the country. And um, these women are incredibly inspiring. They not only care for young children in their homes, but they are pillars and anchors of their communities. And um, I feel very lucky to stand beside them and support them um, in this work. And finally, uh, support for homegrown comes from philanthropic organizations, foundations, et cetera. Same with us as a public broadcasting affiliate, a not-for-profit production company. Um, same thing with you? That's correct. Um, Homegrown is supported by 15 national philanthropic organizations um, who really came together around the fact that 7 million children under the age of five have their early childhood experiences in home-based settings, and that setting receives the least attention, investment, research, innovation, and, you know, we're really committed to um, changing that. And that includes the Tarot Fund right here in New Jersey, in uh, Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much. We wish you all the best. We will continue this conversation. The Reimagining uh, Child Care Initiative is not a program, a series. It's an ongoing commitment. And Natalie, you're a part of our public awareness effort. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. I'm Steve Adubato. Stay with us. We'll be right back. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. We are honored to be joined now by Dr. Alejandro Jimenez-Santana, director of the Newark Public Safety Collaborative and assistant professor of professional practice at the Rutgers School of Criminal Justice. Good to have you with us, doctor. Thank you for having me, Steve. It's, uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Tell everyone what the collaborative is and why it matters now more than ever as we tape midsummer 2021 with crime rising in urban communities all across the nation. 
So, Steve, uh, the, the NPSC was created in 2018 uh, before the movement at, that we know today as Reimagining Public Safety. Uh, I agree with you, crime is rising in some cities across the U.S. Uh, fortunately, in the city of Newark, we've seen a different trend, and that trend has been different uh, since uh, both uh, from the beginning of the pandemic throughout the pandemic and now in 2021. We are seeing a slight increase now in, uh, in violent crime, but throughout 2020, when violent crime was in the rise in other uh, large American cities, what we saw in the city of Newark was actually that violent crime was not spiking and was even going down. And in regards to property crime, the reduction was even more significant. The, the reason why do you think that is, doctor? Sorry for interrupting. Why, and we had former uh, public safety director, uh, Anthony Ambrose on many times, we've spoken uh, to uh, to Raz Bar Mayor Baraka about this. Why do you think Newark? I mean, just across the river, you talk. You look at what's going on in Washington Square Park as we speak right now, and in other places across the nation. What makes Newark different? So I believe in. Nor we're seeing a symbiosis of, uh, of interests that are coming together from City Hall to the police department, the public safety uh, unit, uh, the university, uh, other anchor institutions, community groups. There's a good symbiosis in terms of what can be done to improve public safety in the city of Newark. So you see leadership coming together with community groups, and you see uh, the police department being extremely proactive about thinking out of the box of what can we do to improve public safety in the city of Newark. And I think that we are seeing that type of leadership really uh, playing out. And we are seeing through uh, crime statistics that the city of Newark is an exception across the nation when it comes to, to, to the increase in crime. By the way, with this program is uh, being produced. We talk about higher ed partners. Um, we're producing in collaboration with Rutgers, the State University uh, of New Jersey, and also Rutgers, Newark. But, but I'm curious about this. So if Newark is doing, and Newark is doing better in terms of particularly violent crime rates, then why is Newark and what, going on, what is going on in Newark? Why is it, and I'm not saying it's simple, but in Baltimore and Los Angeles and Chicago and Detroit, why is it not the national model? Mm -hmm. So that's what we are uh, right now advocating for uh, here at the NPSC, the initiative that, I, uh, that, that I'm directing in, uh, at the School of Criminal Justice and, and Rutgers Newark. What we are advocating is for co-production. It's a new model. Is different from uh, traditional community policing uh, models of the past, which have existed in the 70s. And the idea is through data-informed community engagement, which is the way we call this technique, how can we empower the community to work alongside the police? And here there's no rankings. It's not the police who's, di uh, who's uh, directing the conversation. Conversations, not the police who's talking to the community. No. How can they become partners, equal partners in, uh, in the fight for, for public safety? Because in the end, it's a shared uh, mission for all, uh, for, for all stakeholders in the city to come together. So we believe that through data, we can make decisions that are transparent, democratic. We can show how the police uh, can work alongside the community. And we can actually encourage the community, community groups to take action because through access to data, they can, for the first time, I believe, see that they can play a role in issues like homelessness, in issues like mental health problems, uh, increasing awareness of certain problems. And that is something that the police sees with good eyes because the police also has problems that they cannot solve. And the community has the tools and, and they have the skill set to deal with some of these problems. And that's why I believe that here we are in a, in a perfect symbiosis between both groups. Yeah. So, but I want to follow up on this. Mm -hmm. We respect and appreciate the positive things going on in Newark. Not perfect, but much better than most. But, Doctor, would you agree that on the part of a significant number of folks, 
particularly in urban areas, but not exclusively, that there is an anti-police sentiment, that police, many of them, feel under siege. Many of them feel that they can't do their job to protect those disproportionately black and brown in urban communities. That they're, frankly, forget about just defunding the police, but that the police are somehow the enemy. That can't be a solution. So, as you very well explain, even in the city of Newark, uh, right now, let's remember Newark is under consent decree because. Uh, I mean, the federal also... government came in because Newark had such a terrible track record of disproportionately uh, with black and brown uh, individuals. They were just the number of them that were. They were arrested for no reason, uh, the crimes that were not being committed, pulled over, all kinds of stuff. So the federal government came in and said, cut this garbage out. We're going to monitor you. Pick it up from there. Exactly. So as, as you explained very well, the city of Newark is under consent decree because of those reasons. And that's why the, city, the, the police department had to change. And that change, uh, I mean, has gone through years now. They had to improve the way they uh, they police the community. They have to improve the way they collaborate with the community. They have to be more data-driven, which is something that was the that, case. But I, I really, in the time we have, I want you to deal with the other question of so many who are watching right now. I don't even know if it's so many, but uh, many police officers who are friends of ours, friends of mine personally, say we we can't do our job. We are under siege, under attack. We're perceived as the enemy. And for what happened with George Floyd, with the horrific Derek Chauvin and his is. The murder on camera speaks for itself, but there are a whole bunch of cops who feel like they are paying the price for that again and again and again, which is not good for the people they're trying to protect. Exactly. And, and I agree with you 100%. I talk both with the police and with the community, and I, and I feel that, 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 that resentment on the side, of course, of the police, because they feel that they're also being blamed for something that happened in other places. But I also, I also think that it's important that we look into uh, how police pol is police in the streets, how the way they interact with the community. And there is also uh, a need for restoration, a need for more social justice. And I think that in Norway, we are seeing those things. We are seeing those things because at the leadership level, you see how the, the mayor is asking for more involvement of the community, how the community is giving feedback to the, the police. And what I think is very, very important, and, I, and it's something I, I've noticed, is the police is extremely proactive at listening. They want to listen from the community. They want to learn In what they're wrong. Is Newark the anomaly? I'm not trying to be negative here, but my question is, is Newark with Mayor Baraka and the police department, nothing's perfect, but again, seemingly like a very collaborative relationship, it seems like the anomaly. And I agree with you. I mean, I, I'm talking from the perspective of Newark because it's it's where okay. our initiative is and where we are, uh, where I'm right now. But I, uh, I I definitely think, of course, that there must be efforts in other places. But the city of Newark, what I'm seeing is this symbiosis between the different agents, the different stakeholders, walking in the same direction. When the mayor is talking about we need to uh, we need to be more proactive in community-driven uh, solutions for public safety, when the police is open about it and they explain that they are collaborating more, I think that there's, in general, a sense of we want to get there and we know that we need to, get to do it together. So I, I agree with you that in the city of Norwalk, what we are seeing is, is that symbiosis of different parties coming together because, because they all have a shared, shared role, which is to improve public safety. And the city of Norwalk, I feel that we need to understand that uh, it's a city that right now is transforming. And it's a city that in the, in the future, by improving public safety, we might see 
a, a communities thriving where they haven't been thriving over the last couple, uh, 10 years. And that's what something that I've seen that I've seen happening myself over the last 10 years living here. So I'm, I'm very excited to see what's the, what are the next steps in, in this process. Professor, I promise this will not be the last conversation, not even close, because it's not you check off the box, hey, we did something on urban crime and police reform. So much work needs to be done. Um, thank you, Professor. We, we appreciate it, and we look forward to future conversations. All the best to you and the family at Rutgers Newark. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you for having me. Stay with us. We'll be right back. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. We're now joined by Vaughn Crow, who is a managing partner of Newark Venture Partners. Good to see you, Vaughn. Steve, great to see you. For those who don't know what Newark Venture Partners is, describe it for everyone. You know, uh, Steve, again, thank you for having me today. Uh, Newark Venture Partners is a seed stage investment firm focused on enterprise software based here in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, started in 2016 uh, under the wonderful leadership of uh, Don Katz and Ray Chambers, Mark Burson, a lot of friends of Newark, RWJ Barnabas, and several others who believed wholeheartedly that Newark has the intellectual capital and the financial prowess to attract early stage companies to our city that will help catalyze the city of Newark by way of creating a technological infrastructure that will support job creation, will generate market rate returns, and do good by our community. So in a nutshell, that's who Newark Venture Partners is, and we're fortunate to have it here. Sorry for interrupting. So much of what you're talking about in terms of economic development and the technology ecosystem, ecosystem, if you will, um, is about innovation. To what degree, as we're taping this um, late in July 2021, has COVID impacted adversely or otherwise this initiative? You know, Newark Venture Partners, unlike other venture capital funds, um, not, not uh, immune from, from COVID. I personally was affected. Um, uh, but, 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 but for Newark Venture Partners, we've stayed the course in trying to find and support the best and brightest founders from all backgrounds. Um, and one example of how uh, we've stayed the course deploying capital a company moved to the city of Newark uh, from the Bay Area. We led their seed stage investment. They saw the infrastructure that Newark brings to the table, doubled down, uh, took our capital, took our guidance, uh, and moved their offices to Newark. We don't expect that to be the case with all of our uh, portfolio companies, but hopefully that's an example uh, that as an outcome from the challenges that we've all dealt with in COVID, there is still hope and opportunity for business to see Newark and to see Newark Venture Partners as an opportunity to call the city home and contribute to the technological infrastructure here in, in, in our city. So well, let me ask you, um, for businesses who are startups, right, they're early in their development, how was, has COVID impacted them? I mean, they don't have the history, they don't have the relationships, et cetera, et cetera. How many, how hard to even survive it? it? You know, difficult to survive, but keep in mind, we're talking about startups and technology. So built into their nature is the need to have some type of innovation, a level of flexibility that shows that 
we can we can be nimble and we can figure it out. So yes, again, challenging, uh, Steve. But at the same time, um, there is that you know there's that 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 curiosity and that level of interest that exists to suggest how do we innovate? We've had portfolio companies that started off uh, manufacturing security devices, uh, saw a need to be helpful to educational systems and hospitals to track and monitor COVID, pivoted in the middle of a, a pandemic to offer services and products to respond to the global pandemic that we were all dealing with. That's what innovation and that's what technology and these creative minds that have come to Newark from all over the country, uh, that's the beauty of being in this industry is that you have to be flexible, you have to be nimble, and the ability to pivot even during a global pandemic um, is, is, is a strength that we've seen with our founders in our early stage businesses. And we hope to continue to support them such that they can continue to grow and raise money uh, from other investors down the road. Let me ask you, um, the, people talk about hiring shortage. It's funny, you call it a, is it a hiring shortage, a labor shortage. It's, there are jobs, but there are not people to fill, enough of the right people to fill those jobs. To what degree in your work at Venture Partners are you seeing that the labor force is not there to the degree it needs to to support the initiatives that you're supporting? We're investing in early stage businesses, three to five person employees, founder led. So we're in all candor, we're a bit immune from those particular challenges. With that said, we have had a few companies in our fund one portfolio uh, that have grown um, uh, and have taken office space in other parts of the city, in other parts of the country. And uh, I have not yet heard there being uh, too many challenges in finding labor to support their businesses. But I'm sure that as we reopen our offices and have more direct communication with our portfolio founders, uh, we'll learn of those challenges and we'll do what we can to be supportive. Well, give me a minute or so on increasing diversity. Um, we have a long-term series called Confronting Racism. Piece of it is increasing diversity. Why is that in, in terms of gender, race, culture, geographic bias, or ge ge people from different geographies, et cetera, et cetera? Um, why is that important from a business point of view? So, so fundamentally, uh, first and foremost, Steve, it's just the right thing to do. Um, and, and so you start there. And then you, you take two more steps and say, well, if it's the right thing to do, how can I create value from a different point of view? Uh, that point of view coming by way of culture, uh, geography, education, uh, gender, et cetera. There is a direct correlation to the growth and prosperity of a business with diversity and inclusion being a core focus of what, you're, of, of what we're all trying to achieve here. So 56% so of our portfolio is comprised of founders of color and women. Um, our investment team, a five-person five investment team, 60% of that team is comprised of persons of color and women. And so we are a reflection internally of what we're trying to do externally and making money, generating market rate returns and supporting founders from all backgrounds are not mutually exclusive. And I think that we're leading an effort here and hopefully my peers and colleagues will follow. 
Got a few seconds left. I was born and raised and came out of the North Ward of the city of Newark, as you all know. The North End uh, Broadway Boys and Girls Club does not exist anymore, as you know. You came out of a different club. Grew up in the South Ward of Newark, Hawthorne Avenue, South Ward Boys and Girls Clubs in Newark. Because of challenges, I ended up taking two buses from my home on Clinton Place and Hawthorne Avenue over to the Middleton Club, Middleton Avenue Club. And the Broadway Boys and Girls Clubs in Newark was my first job. I have an obligation to bring my community along with the success that Newark Venture Partners will achieve. Uh, we will make money, we'll support founders from all backgrounds, but it's not enough. Um, we have an obligation to support the to, to support our children. And for me, it was personal because I grew up there and uh, who I've become today, all the good. Uh, you can largely attribute that to my family and to the Boys and Girls Clubs of Newark. And our great uh, mutual friend, Ray Chambers, and his support of the Boys and Girls Club is just, there are no words to describe it. There's no words to describe one of the greatest humanitarians probably in our country. Hey, you make the Boys and Girls Clubs uh, proud. You represent quite well. Thank you, Vaughn. Steve, thank you. All of us. By the way, the other, there's another, remember the other guy, one of the guys, Boys and Girls Club. Oh, Shaquille O'Neal, that's right. <laughs> right? I gotcha. <laughs> Shaq, listen. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Vaughn. I'm Steve Adubato. We thank you so much for watching, even whether you're in the Boys and Girls Club of Newark or not. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting reimagined childcare, Rutgers University, Newark, the Fidelco Group, Bank of America, RWJ Barnabas Health, Johnson & Johnson, the Northward Center, United Airlines, and by the Adler Aphasia Center. Promotional support provided by AM970 The Answer, and by NorthJersey.com and Local IQ, part of the USA Today Network. Hi, I'm Abby. You might see me as an ordinary person, but I've been living with a brain injury since 2018. Opportunity Project gave me hope and I've gained confidence through job skill training and helping my family. Despite my challenges with memory, I see a possibility to keep improving. If you have a brain injury, you don't have to face your road to recovery alone. Learn more about Opportunity Project and its partnership with Children's Specialized Hospital.